The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today, as always, are New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. And Allison Davis of The Gut. Hey, Allison. Hey, David. We got a great show for you this week, but first we're going to remind you about the Sex Lives voicemail box. We're going to be ending our episodes with your responses to topics from previous shows. So call us at any time at 646-494-3590. It turns out to be one of those weeks where we ended up talking to our guests for too long and then ended up talking without our guests for longer. So we don't have time for voicemails, but please keep your calls coming. We really love hearing from you. Coming up in just a minute, we're going to interview Carolyn Yates, the not safe for work editor at Autostraddle, who recently wrote a column posing the question, is period sex the ultimate lesbian sexual indicator? Cater. We'll talk to her about that and continue our discussion of period sex, which is turning into basically our favorite subject here. Um, is, this intro is going on so long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Allison, maybe do you want to tell us about this write-up that uh, you were super into in The Independent? Okay, so there was a survey uh, trying to suss out um, like when people are happiest with things in their lives in the UK, and it was done to coincide with the DVD release of the Vin Diesel movie, The Last Witch Hunter. Which... Had, any, had any of us heard of that <laughs> movie? <laughs> I mean, I, I think I saw a trailer, but no. And yeah. I have no idea what this survey has to do with the movie. And I think now this is probably a bullshit survey, but I'm still going with it because one of the things that they clocked were when people are the best at sex. And I like knowing the definite age of most things because it seems like helps me plot my life. You know, yeah. like at 30... I know I'll be confident with sex, but maybe not the best, according to the survey. But at uh-huh. 32, I will be the best at sex I will ever be in my life. So you're heading, you're about to head into your golden age. Yeah. I, yeah. Got, I got two years, guys, and I'm going to be the best at sex I'll ever be. And then it said something about uh, 42-year-olds will earn their dream salary, 38-year-olds will peak at your career, and 40-year-olds are happiest in relationships. But yes. like, it doesn't matter to me. 32 best sex your sexual prime yeah you really got a plan for that year i know like what am i gonna do i should probably buy some new sheets yeah Yeah. you should be ready for that a whole new trousseau of lingerie maybe you should definitely make sure you have a good apartment and a nice bed when you get to 32 oh yeah i should get a new mattress i'll start saving well you've got you've got you've got some time because you're turning 30 now right upcoming yeah and that's you've got two years to plan your like real estate situation and your bed situation but then it's like have i been bad at sex the whole time leading up to 32 like is everything before then just like well i think probably failing the pop quizzes it's interesting to think about just the shape of the curve like are you going to only get gradually better between now and 32 or is it going to be a dramatic increase followed by a dramatic fall and it's really just one day that you're going to be so (laughs) good at sex does it also surprise you guys that like a sex peak comes after sort of retiring your party years? Yeah, that shocked me. That did surprise me, yeah. Mostly that was when like, I was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I refuse <laughs> to accept this. I also just, like, I had more energy, like, three years ago, you know, when I was 27. I had way more energy. But less wisdom. That, but that's true. <laughs> that's true. Does wisdom equate to better sex, though? Because I would actually think not. Oh, no. Well, so here's the thing. As I was contemplating this, after you brought this up, Allison, I was thinking that actually I think sex is one of those things in my life that at any given moment, I'm like, wow, I was such an idiot about that last year. Like, no matter what any, like, base of knowledge you get, 
you're perpetually like, I was so ignorant before I knew X, Y, Z or before I did this or that. I have that feeling less and I feel more like I was like I just behaved so poorly. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that totally. (laughs) Specifically for you. About me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, David, how old are you again? 33. Oh, okay. So did you experience your best? It's just been a horrible year downhill (laughs) since 32. (laughs) Sorry to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think you were having your best sex at 32 now that you're past it? I definitely don't think that it's been like significantly higher level or lower level than a long time but it's i think i may also be a weird you've like, been plateauing. case study because i'm with the same person so you've oh, been yeah. 32 since you were 19 is what you're telling us something like that <laughs> yeah i retired or the reverse lifestyle. Yeah. maybe yeah yeah well, that's uplifting yeah something for us to continue to yeah. look forward to <laughs> there might not be a decline. There could be a plateau. Yeah. I'll take a plateau over decline any day. Well, if you right? plateau at 32, that's pretty great. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Not bad. That's when you need to, like, cryogenically freeze yourself. <laughs> I'm going to watch The Last Witch Hunter and let you know why that survey <laughs> correlates to the DVD release, which I'm still confused about. Cool. <laughs> Wait, I would really like people, though, to call in and tell us. Yeah about what age they think they were having the best sex of their lives and also what age they felt best about their bodies and the correlation between those things. Because I really have to say, like, I think the healthiest I've ever been in my life was probably just before I, like, discovered fun. I think there's maybe perhaps too high a correlation in my life of (laughs) drinking and sex. Like, the best sex is always, like, correlated with activities that aren't healthy to me. But I'm like, what would it be like if I was just like a really healthy machine who never consumed substances? Maybe my sex would be awesome, but that's like so unfathomable to I me. I just think that the fitness levels that come with a lifestyle like that really would make sex better, just like aerobically. I've always personally felt like the fitness thing was overstated. I just feel like yeah. by far the most important ingredient to sex is just like desire. Yeah. And it's like like whether you're in shape or not is like or like no. how flexible you are. These things <laughs> well, are like totally I'm just thinking like irrelevant. if your stamina doesn't match your desire because you get like winded and have to just lie there, like <laughs> that's a problem. Like no one's gonna have fun if you're like, I'm so tired for like, you know I, need, what? I need a break. No, I have to say <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like I can only go five minutes on the arc trainer. How long do you think I can have sex with you? It's not that long. <laughs> okay. Some new theory is that there I think that you have to have a certain level of health. <laughs> Baseline. <laughs> it is true that um, I will say the only time that um, when I was sleeping with somebody who was a very, very heavy smoker and like really um, I realized that the only problem with a heavy smoker to me at least is not them like smelling like smoke or anything, but that he would get winded way too quickly when we were having sex. See? And that was <laughs> it's not it's not heart health, you know, it's true. It's Although I do think your health levels would be pretty low for you to get winded. <laughs> I don't know. Sad. I guess it's depending on what kind of sex you're having. So we've been talking about Kashmir Gander's write-up of a recent survey on happiness and romantic fulfillment for The Independent. Next up, we're going to be joined by Carolyn Yates to talk period sex. So we're joined now by Carolyn Yates, who's a contributing editor for Autostraddle. Her recent piece is Period Sex, the Ultimate Lesbian Indicator. Got us all very excited. And maybe the way to start, Carolyn, is just to explain that headline. So last year, Autostraddle ran the Ultimate Lesbian Sex Survey, which was kind of open to anyone who felt comfortable answering questions in something called the Ultimate Lesbian Sex Survey and who was an assist dude. 
Um, and we got over 8,500 responses. And in looking at period sex, I found that how someone feels about it is a pretty good indicator of what the rest of their sex life is, and that the more enthusiastically in favor somebody was in terms of having sex on their period, the more kind of better and well-rounded their sex life was. They reported more satisfaction with their sex life, more frequent sex, more frequent communication with their partners, and when they communicated, better communication with their partners. They were also having sex for longer periods of time. They reported feeling very confident. They were more likely to do various kinky activities almost across the board compared to people who reported being strongly against having sex on their periods. Man. Um, so being down yeah, with period was... sex is just being down with sex, at least in terms of those who participate in the ultimate lesbian sex survey, it sounds like. And why do you think it is that this is like such a good indicator of so many other things? Like, why is it a good shorthand for how people feel about all of these different elements of their own sex lives? What's that about? Well, to speculate, I would say that the first thing could probably be potentially better communication. So where period sex is still seen as taboo or kind of gross or icky or messy or whatever, talking about it with a partner is good practice for talking about other things. Um, I'm sure there's also some elements of body positivity and sort of embracing bodies and all of their fluids and weirdnesses. And also, if you can can have period sex, there's just more days to have sex on. I did a story once about period sex and people that were, like, super-duper into it. Like, spend the whole month looking forward to it. Wait, what are they called again, Maureen? We call them bloodhounds. (laughs) Um, And what was so interesting to me is all of a sudden as I was looking back over, like, that, I guess I'm curious what you found when you're looking at, you know, women that have sex with women in terms of performing sex acts on a person on their period. Like, it's it's not so much a, a magical, strange thing because you, too, have your period. Like, is it fetishized as much as it is when, like, it's between a straight in a straight couple? Well, the study did not actually ask about that specifically. Ah. Um, but as a queer person who has sex with other queer uterus, having people on their periods, yes. um, I would say that in my experience, no fetishization. It's yeah. just, or if there is, it's very like, yeah, you have your period and we're still going to go for this because we're rad queer feminist people and this is what we do. And it's sort of seen as like, oh, I am performing sex positivity almost by Ah. doing this and it's also you know it's fun or it's like it's nice when sex gets super messy for no reason sometimes um but there's also the element of no this should be part of our regular practice as the type of human being that we want to be it's interesting to hear you talk about it have such a political valence though it's not just a matter of sort of desire but like um almost like political ambition yeah, a little bit. I mean, desire obviously plays a role. Um, and it's, <laughs> I hope, yeah. <laughs> you would hope. Yeah. I only have sex um, for political it's... purposes. <laughs> um, the, the Ultimate Lesbian Sex Survey was actually just, like, great that you guys had, like, an un, it seemed like an unending amount of information that you got from this epic survey. Can you tell us a little more just about the survey itself, about sort of, like, how you did it and what was either surprising about it or significant in your findings? Yeah, so it was, we just ran it on SurveyMonkey in February 2015, and we got over about 15,000 results, but only 8,500 of them were complete. So Mm -hmm. we kind of stuck to the data just from those in case people's computers crashed or whatever. Um, We basically asked about all sorts of facets of queer women and humans' sex lives. So 
who they were and their gender identity and their sexual identities and how they masturbate, what they do in bed, what they do when they're doing things not in bed, um, how their sex is related or unrelated to their relationship status. We asked all about monogamy and non-monogamy, so people in both types of relationships could have their own data sets, basically. Um, sex toys, porn, kink, safer sex. We are still going through it because <laughs> it turns out when you ask about 25 different gender and sexuality markers, it's really hard to go through the data after. Um, but actually, period sex was definitely one of the more intriguing things that we found. Um, another one was discovering that lesbian bed death doesn't really exist the way that we kind of thought it might or suspected mm -hmm. it didn't, but had always been told that it might. Wait, what's lesbian um, bed death, Anita? So, <laughs> so lesbian bed death is kind of the idea that if you have two women-identified people in a relationship sooner or later, and there's all sorts of, oh, after three years, or oh, after three weeks, or oh, after six months, or oh, when you move in together way too fast and it's kind of inappropriate, but you still <laughs> do it, your sex just dies. <laughs> Ah, and three weeks it's so soon and the, th the thinking is that that's <laughs> like the, the myth at least is that that's more dramatic for lesbians than for other people or there's at least more of a word for it or more uh -huh. of a weird sort of anxiety around it than it there is a kind of terrifying people. phrase bed death, death. death. <laughs> just imagine like a yeah. like a mattress falling on top of me <laughs> yeah. um but so what did you actually end up finding then when you look at I don't know, the rates at which people have sex in their relationships, I imagine, would be how you would measure that. Yeah, and we kind of found that broadly, over time, it didn't seem to exist the way that we thought it existed, and it didn't seem to affect people's happiness with their relationships the way that we thought it did. So you kind of have this idea of, oh, everyone is having sex all the time, and the more sex you have, the happier you have. And there have been many studies recently that have proved that that's just not how it works. It has everything to do with the people actually involved. Um, and so this kind of image of like two people who kind of want to be having sex and aren't and who are just sad about it is not true because in fact, there's all of the passion air quotes of the new relationship. And then all you do with that person is have sex and then you're still having sex. But also now you're moving in together, so somebody has to occasionally hang some wallpaper, and so there's just less time for sex, but you're still really happy. Or it just becomes less of a priority for other reasons. Or it turns out that 10 years in, people just start banging like monkeys for no reason. It's just kind of all over the place. And all of the very specific answers that we had about it, like from like looking at individual responses instead of collectively, were very varied, um, which was kind of inspiring. I think that's really wise, the point that, like, just because somebody is having a couple might be having less sex at some point because, say, they just moved in together and busy, that isn't necessarily a sign that they're unhappy with their sex lives, right? I know. I feel like, like, yeah. people yeah. always say, oh, that's the first indicator that your relationship is going to shit when like, you stop But you're like, isn't that sex? an indicator that, like, you have things to talk about so you're capable of, like, not... Like, when I imagine relationships that have just been pure sex, it's because, like, we have literally nothing to say to each other. <laughs> like, we can't even be... There's no buddy element of the fuck buddy. It's just right. fucking... Like, I don't really have any yeah. hobbies at the moment. Like, I only have a sex life. <laughs> you don't really go out except to maybe have sex when you're out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, like, actually kind of dark when that happens. <laughs> no. No, this is good. This is a good uh, antidote to feeling that way. If I don't have sex, I could still be happy in a relationship. Although, if I ever say, well, like, I'm too busy to have sex because I'm hanging wallpaper, just, I don't know. 
send help. That does seem pretty grim. That seems pretty grim. Well, that's also like, God, you Especially need to like... like a 24-hour. That's like a you need a task, right? But that's a lot of wallpaper yeah. hanging. Like, you've got like so many walls at that a point. professional at that point. <laughs> your house is far too large. <laughs> Another element of your survey that I really enjoyed was... Um, when you described the different ways to have sex and how often people have it, which you included with this sort of um, extremely elaborate is it sex flow chart of the sort of yeah. variety of things that fall under the umbrella of sex and who considers what to be sex. Can you tell us a little bit about those findings? Sure. So um, I guess to start, about 92% of our survey respondents define sex as just any time you're with at least one other person and someone is trying to make someone have an orgasm, which is basically very reflective of the way that queer women and humans have sex, which is Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of different ways. (laughs) And everybody argues about what counts. Or sometimes two people doing one activity might argue about whether or not it's sex in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed really useful to just kind of define it as two or more people and someone's trying to make someone have an orgasm. It's also interesting to hear you talk about how central the orgasm is to the idea of whether it's sex or not. Which is actually kind of disheartening when you think about it, because sex should not be about orgasm. But it was kind of the way to put parameters around it that made the most sense at the time. Mm -hmm. Carolyn, when you look at the way that straight cis people talk about period sex, is there, like, are you horrified at this sort of mix of fascination and discomfort that often attends it? You know, like, I mean, just... I often don't look at the way that straight people think about sex. <laughs> um, <Fair>. No offense. <laughs> but um, it does seem, yeah, like this weird mix of horror and fascination that just seems almost out of place. Like if you want to be horrified or fascinated by something that's happening in your bedroom, that is one thing. But to have that sort of thing exist about something that's just kind of normal for people's bodies seems really strange to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like confused horror is some, like, essential element of heterosexuality in general, because you're just perpetually being like, look at this strange <laughs> alien body, right. like, completely unlike that which I encounter on a daily basis on myself. I don't know. Like, the in my mind, the sort of, like, quintessence of heterosexuality is, like, the moment I discovered sex and sexuality through dudes was, like, a confused horror and like that is completely <laughs> central to my understanding of what sex is right. this complete otherness was like always essential to it well yeah there were a few people who reported being really for sex on their own period and really against sex on their partners oh interesting. Um, or some variation of that which i found really interesting yeah. and maybe did they say why reflective... no they didn't say why hmm. um i investigated because i thought it was weird and both of them definitely like have had sex. It just they just really want period sex for themselves, but not for other people. It was very weird. I would assume that somebody who's so staunchly like, or I guess like a little selfishly for period sex for themselves, but not yeah. for somebody else, would be like yeah. the least open and like the least communicative kinds of people. They just seem so stubborn. I'm really making a lot of assumptions here. <laughs> but- yeah, I know. Well, as, as I think about that, and then I say, re- imagine the reverse of somebody that is like so into period sex for their partner, but not themselves. Like, then I wonder if maybe there's just something like like essential and physical about the way they deal with their periods or something. Right. Uh, but that one makes way more sense to me because if you have like crazy cramps or some sort of, like, something happening in your uterus that makes having sex or just being touched at all on your period super painful. It makes sense that you wouldn't want it, but would still be totally up for having sex on somebody else's period. You know what surprised me? When I was looking at the list I'm looking at right now of the, like, what ways do you have sex, what counts as sex, that sort of thing, 
fisting, <laughs> vaginal fisting was 18%, and BDSM was 22%. Those are, like, really close. And it is kind of shocking to me that those two acts occur at the same frequency. No? I mean, it doesn't seem weird to me personally. Huh. Um like, it's not an either-or situation, yeah, so of some of the people who are into fisting were also into bondage. This seems that unusual a sex act. I feel like that's a thing like, that never happens in straight world. Which Does one? Does it? Fisting? Maybe. Vaginal fisting? It's sort of amazing, because you think that you're like, well, we're all women. Like, how could our sex be that different than each other's? Um, possibly the focus during sex is different. Well, yes, this is Like, true. sometimes, if, if you already have fingers in the vicinity, and there's nothing you really want that you care deeply about also getting in that vicinity instead of the fingers, then sometimes you just add more fingers and <laughs> kind of progress from sense. there instead of being, okay, we did this a little bit. Let's do the next thing now. Is there stuff that you're looking at now or thinking about um, diving into in a deeper way that you're especially excited about that you haven't sort of gotten to yet, but you're eyeing on the horizon? I'm really excited to do more stuff about kink and BDSM and how that interacts with people's relationship styles and satisfaction um, and all of the other sort of indicators that we asked about as well, um, simply because people, don't, people haven't really looked at that for queer women and humans yet. Um, so I'm excited to do that. And then we also have an upcoming post, I think, about... Um, the reasons women in lesbian relationships aren't having more sex, um, which we all kind of touched on earlier with the bed death thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Wallpaper. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, or um, a few other things that were on that list are like depression or antidepressants or yeah. dealing with trauma, you know, super, super sexy things. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the length of relationship. You just don't want to have more sex or you have sex for really long periods of time. And so it's, doesn't happen as often because when it does it really happens and everyone (laughs) takes up the whole week there's just a limited amount of time (laughs) yeah i like that reason yeah (laughs) you can't do it every day if it takes three days at a time (laughs) yeah it's very true carolyn thanks so much for coming on it's been great talking to you oh my pleasure thanks for having me Whenever we talk to someone who's like into BDSM, I, it just feels like they're living in like such a different universe than I am. I it's like they're but like, I "What do you mean it's really... so common?" And I'm like, "I, I mean, thought... I... well, that's Fist, why I was shocked. Fist? I thought 22 percent for BDSM sounded so low." Yeah. Am I wrong about low? that? I thought yeah. uh, 18% for fisting sounded very high to 18% me. 18% for fisting sounded high to me, and 22% for BDSM sounded super duper no, low. Because like, I feel like There's, at it's... least half of hetero couples are doing that. What? No? No. I mean, I guess it depends how you define BDSM. Like, I don't count but... like light spanking as BDSM, right? Like... If you're talking about like some serious gear, I would put well, that like at like gear, 5%. but like everyone's been like tied up and blindfolded at some point, right? Tied up? Is that Does BDSM? that count? I don't bondage think... that's like shit you do in college that's like hardly like <laughs> but that's why like everyone's done it right i guess maybe they like make bdsm I... like for real like you know sailor knots <laughs> i don't know i guess maybe i have just like a very loose definition of bdsm but i'm like i feel like you can see you have a whole spectrum that's there is a whole spectrum so, yeah. i think tying somebody up I don't know. Isn't that is the, it just what is bondage? Not, yeah, that. So it's bondage <laughs> if you tie someone up and just walk away and don't have sex with them. 
That's just like kidnapping. I feel like maybe you have like a very like um, it's only advanced BDSM that you consider worth it. Yeah. Which uh, which I guess in retrospect like it 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 still counts if you get tied up because it's still bonding. You don't have to like because it's not like the most advanced version you can think of. Yeah, like it doesn't have to be like a professional series of like knots and cords for it to be bondage, does it? And I feel like somebody has to be like suspended from the ceiling (laughs) in a leather outfit. That's unfair. I think you're being unfair. Yeah, you've got a really high threshold here. It's like it's like Spider-Man threshold. You have like a really vivid memory of a Law and Order episode that I saw when I was like eight years old that just scarred me. Oh, like SVU? Because I could definitely. I really Pre- just think that if you era. like if you tie someone to headboard and you have sex, you're having bondage sex. I guess I technically like that's little... true. It just doesn't play that way for me. I don't know. Anyway. anyway. We didn't have time for voicemails this week, but we've been getting tons of great responses from all of you, so please keep calling at 646-494-3590. This week, in addition to when you were at your sexual peak and when you felt best about your body, we'd love to know your thoughts about period sex and what kind of person would want sex on their period but not for their partner's period. Um, Also, anything else we discussed today or anything else you want to talk to us about. That's it for Sex Lives. Sex Lives is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you next week, and thanks for listening. Thank you.